Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled Manly Almighty Grace. When a little child skins their knee, you give them a band-aid, right? When you break a bone, you put a cast on it. However, what is to be done about the cancer of sin that renders us dead? Glory to God that His grace is not just a band-aid upon our dead corpse. It is His very almighty power at work within us. Please, contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. Manly, almighty grace. Now, here's the funny thing about it. Grace is a girl's name. So do you see this here? Manly, almighty grace. You know, we have a, you know, one of our staff members here at Ellerslie is named Grace. And uh, it's an interesting thing to call her manly grace. Uh, but there's a line... Uh, in the Bible, that uh, where there's an exhortation to the body of Christ, and it's "Quit you like men." Okay, and I. Well, that goes to men and women. Quit you like men. Rise up and be strong. That's not the concept we typically associate with grace. Okay, which is why the title, "Manly Almighty Grace." You see, grace, like many other words in Christianity today, is under siege. You see, if you can redefine the idea of grace, you undermine the entire platform of the gospel. It's an interesting strategy. If you could come into the church of Jesus Christ and change the meaning of words, then people come to different conclusions about what God's intent was. Grace is a centerpiece of the gospel. Most of us could admit that. We don't even have to spend that much time around Christianity, we know that. Well, so if you were going to come in and you had a great diabolical strategy to undermine the truth of Jesus Christ, this is going to be one of your target words. And by the way, it has been one of the target words for the enemy. There's this entire notion of what grace is in our modern world today. And by the way, has very little, if not, if I should say, nothing to do with the actual definition in Scripture. Where do we get it from? Well, that's a good question. How in the world do we come up with definitions that aren't supported and based in Scripture? Don't we care about what God has to say about it? This is called the gospel of grace. And so when you understand grace, let me give you a quick illustration of the modern Christian understanding of grace. Here's us. Okay? Woe is us. We're miserable. We stink. We're in a cyclical pattern of defeat. We're a mess. Here's grace. And it hugs us. It accepts us in our defeated state. And I want you to realize, there is an element of grace that shows that. And so it's not a complete falsity. It's not just an outright deception. It is a subtle twist. Because what it shows is that it's an unmerited hug. And God just says, you know what? I don't care how ugly and how bad how rebellious, how treacherous you are. I just want you to know, I accept you. There's a part truth in this. And that is that when we come to our king, we have no merit of our own. We have no worthiness of our own. We are treacherous scallywags. That's a good uh, pirate term. We are not deserving of it at all. And yet, God extends out his mercy to us. And by the way, that's mercy. But it's mercy is a dimension, it's a component, it's like a piece of the puzzle of what grace is. But we've taken this concept out, and we've said, this is grace. 
actually, that's, that's not true. That's mercy. And it's undeserved. You see, in the Old Testament, we have a word called grace. The definition is unmerited favor, which is where most people get the idea that the New Testament, that's what grace means. The word in the New Testament is charis. Okay? And so, however, the New Testament clearly defines the idea of grace over and over and over and over again. And yet we've taken the definition from a word in the Old Testament and stuck it in the New. See, the Old Testament is a foreshadow. It's a statement, a prophetic statement of a grace that will come. And we, the peoples of this earth, have no merit to deserve it. What will come that will embody this grace and express this grace we are unworthy of? We are unmerited of what God is about to bring about. What was that something that God brought about? His name is Jesus Christ. He is grace incarnate. And he came and we were completely unmerited. And it was the favor of God upon us. Not because we did anything, but he came. So that's the fulfillment of grace. The new, the new uh, I'm sorry, the, the gospels, I don't know, even know if they mention grace. Okay, It's like maybe once in the whole thing. There's 126 mentions of the word grace or charis. In the New Testament, let me just say it this way, of, care, of grace, translated grace in the New Testament. And most of those are not in the four Gospels. So what happens when Jesus dies, sends forth his spirit at Pentecost, this idea of grace opens up. Okay? So what I'm going to do, just to set a stage for this, is I'm going to give you an understanding of what grace is biblically. This isn't what my message is on. This is a foundation for it. Because we're going to talk today about the work of grace. Not just what grace is, but the work of grace. Rediscovering the muscle of almighty grace. Grace is the enabling power of God to carry out the impossible errands of God on planet earth. It's God's perfect work. It's God's perfecting work. God's perfect perfecting work wrought ever mercifully and compassionately upon the undeserving soul of man. You see, God isn't just interested in hugging us in our sin. You know that he loves us too much to leave us in our sin? Grace takes a man and lifts him out of the mud, washes him clean, sets his feet on a rock, makes him new. That's grace. We are saved by this grace. Grace changes a man. It doesn't leave us the way we were. It rescues us to be something we aren't. To be like him. It's the work of grace. Okay, so if we mess with the understanding of grace, what we end up with is we accept our mediocrity. Oh, woe is me. We keep the trembling lip in our Christian existence. And we come to God over and over again and he puts his arm around and says, you know what, you're fine. My grace is sufficient for thee. You know what, that's actually not what grace is. You see, God loves us too much to leave us. But most of us have been left and we've been justified. One of the gold medallion award-winning books in Christianity, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey goes through and describes grace without using biblical text to support it. He's talking about mercy and kindness. Great stuff. He says some wonderful things. It's not grace. What's so amazing about grace? You want to hear it? It'll take a wretch and make him something new so that he's a new creature shining forth the brilliance of heaven in and through human behavior, actions, and attitudes. That's grace. That's amazing grace. 
Lift this thing up. Put some muscle to it again. It's this limp-wristed, weak thing in our world. We have grace. Grace that will change us to cause us to demonstrate and shine forth the love of God on earth. I wasn't excited about that. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Why? That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Okay, is that busting the lid off your understanding of grace right there? This is what the New Testament says over and over and over again. In other words, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. A superfluous amount. It's available to you whenever you will need. Why do you need it? So that you will have all sufficiency in all things. And you may abound to every good work. You may be able to meet every requirement. Everything that is needed to carry out the impossible errands of God. Everything that is needed for life and godliness. How can you possibly pull it off? Thank you, God, for your grace. It's his grace at work in us that enables us to live a life that we never could. It's not us. It's him working. Grace is the work of God on our behalf. Grace comes in and saves us. That's a work of God. Then it carries us forward. It regenerates us. It renews us. It sanctifies us. That's a work of grace. And it causes us to abound into every good work. So that we can perform in this world the way God intends the human life to perform. I love grace. We need to write more songs called Amazing Grace. Because it is truly amazing. What is grace in the New Testament? Grace is much more than the compassionate hug of God. It is the enabling of God to perfection. Charis, grace, appears 126 times in the New Testament, 99 times... It is used in such a way that shows both the compassion as well as the enabling power dimension of grace simultaneously. It's just not incorrect to say that grace is an extension of God's compassion and his mercy. The only reason that he's doing this for us is an extension of his compassion upon us. We are totally unmerited and undeserving for it. So it's true. We don't want to cut it in half and only take the power half. We must take both because that's the full picture. When you're putting together a puzzle, just dare not take one puzzle piece. Because you will not see the full picture of what it is attempting to express. But there's 99 times where there's both and. In other words, both the compassion and the power are both shown. 25 times it is used in such a way where the enabling power dimension is brought to the forefront and is unmistakable. One time it is used with more emphasis toward the compassion dimension. But even in that verse, one could argue the nuance of the enabling power. One time. One The entire Bible. And one other time, grace is used in the New Testament to show something other than either compassion or enabling power. It's a completely different Greek word, euprepia, which means beauty or shapeliness. There's your 126 times in the New Testament. So let's just recalibrate the system here. Reset. Let's get back to what grace is. Because we have authors out there that are describing what grace is, and it's not grace. It's mercy and kindness, and there's nothing wrong with mercy and kindness. Let's just make sure we don't take hostage the word grace and associate it. Mercy and kindness is a portion of grace, but grace has a job to do. And if we truncate our expectations of what grace is up to in our lives, then we will not allow it to work and to bring about full bloom and to bear almonds in our life. That's 
a reference to the message canon. Sorry, those of you that are around here this weekend. For those of you that weren't around this weekend, that'll just be a nice mystery in your mind. By whom we have received grace. We received grace. Is this the hug of God? And apostleship. Why did we receive grace and apostleship? For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. So it's according to this grace. I have laid the foundation and another man builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he build thereon. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But listen to this. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. Well, not you, Paul. What, what, what do you mean? But the grace of God, which was with me. The grace of God is laboring within Paul. How does this work? I thought grace was a hug. How does a hug labor? God is at work in his children through grace. I'm not going to spend any more time. I have entire messages at Ellerslie that go into the concepts of grace. That's just a little overview because we're going to stick some manly stuff back in grace. Because we're going to talk about what grace accomplishes. Because remember what day it is? It's Resurrection Sunday. All right, so we have some work to do. Grace is what is the outflow of what took place those 2,000 years ago. When that stone was rolled away, something emerged in this world. A new life. From in Adam to in Christ. There's a grammatical issue in Scripture that most of us, I think, take for granted, and that's the concept of in For instance, over and over and over, Paul uses the concept of being in Christ, in him. And we sometimes, I think, think it's just a translation issue. It's like, well, he could have said on Christ or under Christ or near Christ, but he said in Christ. Well, in denotes the idea of actually being inside something. Is that important? You better believe it's important. The whole gospel hinges upon it. See, in Isaiah 61, it talks about the cloak or the robe of righteousness or the garments of salvation. If you're getting into clothes, you have to be in your clothes. Okay, you don't want to be on top of your clothes. That leads to tremendous embarrassments in this culture. Okay, you need to be in your clothes. And Christ's righteousness is denoted or is clarified to be like clothing. It is something we must come into. And so we are in wrong clothing. And this is our problem. This is why the gospel is significant for us. We are in Adam. We are in a false righteousness or an unrighteousness. We are not as we ought to be. We are a stench to heaven. We cannot enter into communion with the Most High God. Something's wrong with us. What? What? We're in Adam. And as a result, we're in sin. We're in a sin principle where we are being controlled by the power of the old man, the power of the flesh. You know that cyclical pattern of behavior you have in your life that you hate? You want to get out of it, but you can't seem to deal with it. Because you even esteem God's pattern. You're like, I want to live for you, God. And yet, you keep behaving a certain way. That's being in Adam. See, there's a behavior pattern that Adam demonstrates. And it is one controlled by the flesh. It's called the old man. Paul calls it the old man. It's, it's that sensual aspect of your life. That you aspect. Say, you know what? I crave things and I must have them. And it's always causing a stumble in your existence. You see, God defines a pattern of living that is very opposite, is selfless. It, doesn't, it isn't led by its sensual desires. It is led by the desire of Christ. And we can esteem that when we can't live it. 
And so it's an impossible barrier that seems to stand between us and what we're supposed to be like. But what Jesus Christ did when he died on that cross is he made an avenue available to us to enter into a new order of living. And that means to be in Christ, in actuality, in Christ. The illustration I've used at Ellerslie many times, in fact, it was last Easter that I gave the message in Christ. And I was talking about a plane sitting on the tarmac. And, you know, if you're just standing near the plane, you can know that that plane can defeat the law of gravity. There's not many things that can defeat the law of gravity. But a plane, a law of aerodynamics trumps the law of gravity. And so you can sing songs about the plane. You can cheer it on and go, go plane. However, you yourself, if you are outside the plane, will not defeat the law of gravity just with your praises and your worship and your knowledge and understanding of how the plane defeats gravity. It doesn't actually help you defeat gravity. So you have a principle in your life known as the principle of sin, the law of sin and death. And it weighs upon you and you cannot get out from under this order, this law, this pattern of living. Yet there is a higher law that has been made available to us. Literally, a plane has been built, an ark has been established, one that can actually defeat and trump that lesser law. However, there's a secret to getting lift off in your life. There's a secret to taking advantage of the merits and the virtue of that plane. And that is you must get inside of it. Say you're well-meaning and, you know, by staring at it long and hard, you don't, it's the value and the virtue of it is not transferred to your existence. No, I love that plane. I love that plane. I love that plane. Just saying a mantra about the plane doesn't cause it to happen. Say you get on top of the plane. You're very near it. You're touching it. You're sitting on top going, I love you plane, kissing the plane. You know what? When that plane takes off, you still fall to the ground. And you've been on that ground so many times, you're sick and tired of it. Some of us, that's exactly what our Christian life has been. On the plane, not in the plane. So when we're talking about grace, one of the first works of grace is to awaken us to our need, to show us what Christ did, the great work of grace, and then to invite us in. You see, Jesus has made a way. But now in Christ Jesus, look at the the grammar, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, a lot of us have read that scripture. We know that scripture and we assume we have it because of course we prayed a prayer, but we're not in Christ. We're near Christ. We're around Christ. We're talking about Christ. But we haven't been made new creatures. Don't allow that to be your reality. Fight this. You want the gospel to permeate your existence. The next of the five kings. Let's read this. This is going to be an introduction into the idea and the work of grace. This is Old Testament. Back in the time of Joshua. Now Joshua is the same name for Jesus in the New Testament. It's a Hebrew translation into a Greek Yeshua. And so you have this picture of Jesus in the character of Joshua, the one who follows Moses, Moses being symbolic of the law. And the one who follows Moses is the one who can bring his people into the land flown with milk and honey, the man of the spirit. And so Joshua, the commander in chief of the armed forces of God, the Lord of battle, if you will, who brings about salvation from all the enemy. 31 hostile empires in the land of promise. 31 hostile ones. See, we're used to 
sitting in the wilderness and staring at the land of promise. But we have a Joshua who is willing to say, follow me. And he'll take us across the Jordan and lay waste to 31 hostile empires that are within our souls. All those strongholds and all those behaviors and all those attitudes that have been decimating our existence. Our Joshua is able. So listen to this. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. Makedah is in Judah. So we have the division of Israel is into different you know, tribes and they have territories. Well, this is the, this is the parcel uh, of territory that belongs to David, ultimately, and to Jesus. I mean, Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is Makedah, right? You know, it's, it's near Jerusalem. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, open the mouth of the cave. So there's some cave over here, and it's closed off. And Joshua says, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. All the cities of Judah that these kings were ruling over. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua... That Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. This is a great scene. Okay, so Joshua literally is humbling his opponent. They're laying down and the captains among the, the people of the Israelites... Stick their foot upon the necks of the kings. A foot in, in the Hebrew culture and understanding is dominion. In other words, when something is under your feet, that means you rule over it. It cannot retaliate. It is defeated. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Okay, now... If you spent the weekends here at Ellerslie, you know that I am always taking the Old Testament pictures and linking them with Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus laid waste to all that stands against our soul. Every enemy that could possibly hinder the forward progression of your soul has been defeated. And so you'll see shades of something in this. Because Jesus himself is saying, don't you realize that they're defeated? Come over here. Come over here, Eric. I'm like, well, I don't know, that, that guy is really strong. Come over here. Stick your foot on its neck. I, I, I don't know. I mean, lust has pushed me around for, for, for a lot of years. I, I, I don't want to get too close. They're defeated, Eric. Stick your foot on their neck. And afterward, Joshua smote them. I love that word, smote. And slew them. I don't know what the difference between smote and slew. I think smote sounds like, Poof, and then slew is. <laughs> and then look what he did. And hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun. Those of you that are familiar with the New Testament are going to be sitting there going, whoa, this is oddly similar. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth 
which remain until this very day. Isn't that fascinating? The man of salvation brings forth the opponents of what stands against Israel, stretches them down and demonstrates before all the people they're defeated. Sure, they look alive. You know what? All your enemies in your soul, they sure do seem alive. They're still talking, grumbling, moaning, and groaning about the fact that they really have power over you. They're defeated. And Jesus says, fear not. Stick your foot upon their neck. Why? Because you're in the presence of Joshua. They can't mess with you. The tree, the tomb, and the titanic stone. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide. So we're in Joshua again. So Ai, remember Ai? It's the second great battle after Jericho. Joshua is probably a little upset after this one. It's like, okay, where's the king? And he hanged him on a tree until evening. Sun's going down. You see a, a parallel here? And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remains unto this day. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, this is the Deuteronomic code that Moses is detailing before they went into the land of promise, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Okay, if you're hanging a man on a tree... That's a statement of anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Okay, this is a bad thing. Anything that's hanging on a pole, a tree, you know, a post, this is bad. The Jews are horrified by anything hanging on a tree, by the way. I mean, it's a mark of condemnation. It's a mark of horror. It's a mark of shame and scandal. And so when they hung these kings on trees and posts... It was the ultimate defilement, the ultimate negation of their power. It's judgment upon them. But they were to take them down before the day ended. Okay, so eventide is coming, sunset is arriving. Because you do not want to defile the land, we take them down. Justice has been served. You guys starting to see a foreshadow here? The accursed of God. Death while hung up on a pole or tree to the Hebrew, or a death that is gained by being hung up on a pole or tree to the Hebrew, was a death that carried with it the highest degree of disrepute, indignity, and reproach that can attach to a man. The foulest stench of degradation. For it denoted both the carrying of the just penalty for sin and the unmitigated exposure to scandal, shame, and infamy. Those that beheld the hanging man recognized his pitiful and disgraceful state, for he was lifted into a strata of unsurpassed contempt between heaven and earth, thusly declaring that he has been abandoned of both and was heretofore unworthy of either. He's unworthy of this earth and he's unworthy of heaven. Stick him between the two. He's rejected of men. He's accursed, a worm and no man. But God made it clear to his people 
that when such a man hangs upon a pole or tree, he mustn't hang there through the night, but ought to be taken down at sunset and then subsequently buried in the ground. This was a symbol that the justice was settled, the law satisfied, the guilt now removed, and no more was demanded. Then he and those that are his, meaning the, the man or woman hanging upon the tree, ceased to be a curse. And now that his body was buried, the land of Israel was purified and cleansed of his crimes. This was not just dealing with justice in that individual man's body. This was also a national justice to say we are cleansed of his crime. What was done wrong in our midst has been purged. It has been accursed and then it has been removed and buried. And heretofore, we will not partake in its stench. That stench that was in Israel has been cleansed. The cursed Nehushtan. Nehushtan is a term that Hezekiah gave to the bronze serpent that Moses erected. Remember that Moses erected. You see, these fiery serpents, the Israelites were in disobedience, which seems to be a very common theme, uh, not just for them, but for us. And God sends fiery serpents into their midst, and men and women are later being bitten and dying. So they appeal to God, cry out for mercy. And God tells Moses to stick a fiery serpent, or in in this sense, a bronze serpent, up on a pole to hang it between the heavens and the earth. And anyone who would look upon it would be healed. That's interesting. Well, this symbol of the bronze serpent still lingered in Israel. They still had it. The original one that Moses built. And they started worshiping it, bowing down to it in the days of Hezekiah. It's ridiculous. But he called it the Nehushtan, that bronze thing. And so that's, that's, what it, that's the term that we understand in Hebrew history, because, thanks to Hezekiah's nice name for it. The Nehushtan. The cursed Nehushtan. Let's go back and look at it in numbers. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God. By the way, that's just never a good idea. Okay? And against Moses, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Okay? If you've ever heard that same type of statement coming out of your soul, what kind of deal is this, God? I expect peace and comfort, ease of living. I don't want to serve you and be miserable. This is hard. It's better to keep your mouth shut sometimes. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass, that when every one that is bitten... When he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, I'm not going to say that this is easy uh, to describe and to understand. Okay, why would a serpent hanging on a pole be any help to anyone? 
It's a good question, isn't it? Because anything that is hung between the heavens and the earth on a pole is accursed. So what, what is this? There seems to be a statement here, a foreshadow of something. That that which is accursed, it is being accursed for you. And so when you behold it, you are recognizing your salvation. This has been accomplished that you might be saved. I have taken the serpent and cursed it. That it would not kill you. To save them from the natural death of the fiery serpent and the bite. This serpent was accursed. Something had to be accursed to provide a means of rescue so that they weren't accursed. Our Jesus became the Nehushtan, the cursed thing. This is almost too difficult to comprehend. Okay, and I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand this. Okay, I've been wrestling with this. And I don't want to say that it's crystal clear, but it's still fact. Okay, and when you know something is true in Scripture, because I'm going to give you the Scripture that actually says it straightforwardly, that we know that he was cursed for us. I just don't like the picture of the serpent in it. I don't like my Jesus being associated with a serpent at all. So I don't like that picture of the Nehushtan being associated with Jesus Christ. Okay, so some of you are with me on that. It's like, yeah, this is uncomfortable. Let's keep walking. John 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What? What? That says it fairly straightforwardly there, doesn't it? Why? That whosoever believes in him, which seems to be gazing upon the means of salvation. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave, and the context for this is the Nehushtan, (laughs) that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, in that cross, something was condemned. But his goal was to preserve us from condemnation. So he went to that pole, that tree, that cross, and he accomplished something. And it was a condemnation, which we're going to explore at a basic level. And by us looking upon it, And realizing that something took our place and was cursed in our place. That it was hung between the heaven and the earth. The very place we should have been. That something is satisfied in heaven. And we then, the ones deserving of the snake bite. The ones actually bitten by the snake. By beholding it, are set free from the venomous effects. But that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned. Already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you imagine someone bitten by a snake and saying, I'm not going to look at the pole. I'm not going to look at the pole. Well, guess what? All the effects of that snake bite still reside in your body. You must obey. 
And you must behold what your Messiah has accomplished. And this is the condemnation. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light. That his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. You know, in Israel, for you to go out of the way and to look at the pole was an acknowledgement that you were snake bitten. And so you have to acknowledge that you've been bitten (laughs) to then go out of your way. If you want to live in the darkness and say, hey, I'm fine the way I am, you're going to die of a snake bite. You have to acknowledge that you are bitten. That the venomous effects of evil are overtaking your body and quickly. And the effects and the wages of that sin is death. There's only one solution. Jesus has provided it. The Nehushtan. As strange as that is and as awkward as that is, that's the solution. Because in Galatians 3 it says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen to this line. I made it bold just so you wouldn't miss it. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So just in case you think I'm extrapolating something that shouldn't be extrapolated, uh, Paul is the one extrapolating it. I'm just merely mimicking it. For he hath made him to be sin for us. I would rather emphasize the next little portion, which is who knew no sin. This is, this is outrageous. It's not just Eric being chosen by God and saying, you know what, you're a wreck anyways. I'm going to put the weight of the sin of the world on you and I will curse you for, for everyone else. You know, that would actually be a lot more reasonable. I'd be like, no, 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 let me go. Take him. His death will cleanse all of Israel. That would make more sense to us. Instead, God himself comes down. And there's something about the fact that he knew no sin that plays a role in this whole drama. There's some reason why I cannot die for the sins of the world. There's a reason for it. Why I can't be the curse for you. I know sin. I am not the perfect sacrifice. I am not without blemish and spot. There's something wrong with me. I can't be your redeemer. I can't be your rescuer. I can't hang on the tree for you. There's something happening here. Jesus was made sin for us. That's a very difficult thing. And in fact, if you were to ask me, you know, corner me afterwards and say, what does it exactly mean that he was made sin for us? I don't have it all figured out, but I know it's true. I believe it. I don't quite fully understand it. Talk to me five years from now and I'll probably have an eloquent answer. But I know he knew no sin as well. And that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's a funny statement. He's made sin for us. And yet when we come into him, we're made the righteousness of God. Well, how in the world did he remain sin? You follow me on this? In other words, he was made sin for us. Well, when he resurrected from the dead, was he still sin? How could we get inside of him and be made the righteousness of God? He's actually indirectly saying right in this scripture... He was made sin for us and then became the full expression of the righteousness of God for us to enter into. 
Somehow that sin that he carried, he deposited it where it needed to go. He shed it off and he plunged upward and rolled away the stone and exited from the tomb and provided us the garments of salvation himself, his very life. Come on in. He built the ark. The judgment is coming. Come on in. And when you come into that ark, that Jesus, that redemption, that cloak, that garment of righteousness, you find salvation. He becomes the righteousness of God for you. The sting. Now, this is not talking about the sting of the serpent. It's sort of a play on words here. There's a sting. There's another term for a sting, and that is, well, let me give you the definition. I won't even try and say it. The moment when a con artist finishes the play and takes the mark's money. So a con artist has a mark, and they're going to con him. They're going to play the con. And so the sting is the moment when a con artist finishes the play and takes the mark's money. If a con game is successful, the mark does not realize he has been taken or cheated, at least not until the con men are long gone. I like this. The serpent, the nakash, he's the con artist. He's the cheat, he's the cursed, he's the condemned. So when it's put up on a tree, it's a symbol of taking all that is evil, all that is dark, all that deserves to be condemned is placed on that tree. You see, what we look at when we see the cross is we see Jesus on the tree. And what we don't see is what all else happened on that tree. You see, Jesus, when... Well, I don't want to give away my little punchline here. Okay, let me see if... Conning the con and crushing his head. The con man. Did God really say? He conned us. And he's constantly conning us. And Jesus comes. Innocent as a dove. And he cons the con man. He pulled off the ultimate victory. He stung the stinger. Let me go back to the description here. If a con game is successful, the mark does not realize he has been taken or cheated. At least not until the con men are long gone. Jesus has fallen right into our hands. Kill him. Crucify him. Make him accursed. Shame him. And Jesus is silent. Jesus wasn't taken. Jesus gave himself the ultimate sting. Jesus, in this situation, looked as if he was the mark. When in actuality, he's the one playing the enemy. The enemy is motivated by greed, lust, ambition. Everything we typically are. And he walked right into it. And when Jesus was on the cross, I don't know how to mentally give you a picture for this. But he reached out somehow and yanked the serpent, pinned him to the cross. Everything that was condemning us, he yanked it. The serpent was walking away laughing, grabs him by the neck, sticks him to the tree. And the wrath of God falls on Jesus and in the process condemns sin. 
I don't know how to describe it because I wasn't there. I can't see the spiritual realm of what was taking place. All I know is what the Bible says. Because somehow on that tree, the enemy was rendered powerless. How is the enemy rendered powerless when Jesus is the one powerless? All we know is that something else was nailed to that tree in addition to the Son of Man. How that happened, I can't quite explain it. But I know it happened. And somehow when we look upon that, and we see the perfect Son of Man, He's the one with a choke grip on the enemy saying, This is the only way to take him down. And the wrath of God is poured out. And literally, God in one fell swoop takes down the con man and crushes his head. Everything that was needed to be destroyed was brought down at the cross. One of my mental pictures for this, it's not perfect, I'm still working on it. You know Jonah? Jonah was a prophet of God. Good guy. However, when God brought up the challenge of Nineveh, boy, it really didn't go over well with, with, uh, with Jonah. So he's living in rebellion. You see, there was a little scallywag and scoundrel still in Jonah. And it was causing all sorts of problems. The boat he was on, you know, and he was trying to get away uh, from his call to Nineveh. You know, it was in rough waters and they drew lots, found out that the reason was Noah. You know, there's rough waters in your life. There's a reason. There's still a scallywag and a scoundrel in you. And there's a big fish that God assigns. And around its neck, it says, I only eat scallywags and scoundrels. And so Noah gets dumped overboard. Oh, what did I say? Noah? So Jonah's thrown overboard, and the big fish, what was the sign? I only eat scoundrels and scallywags. He sees a scoundrel and a scallywag. He, you know, sticks him into his digestive system. However, there was still a mighty prophet in that scallywag and scoundrel. And so he dissolved away all the scallywag and scoundrel, and then spit back what couldn't be digested. And that's... Almost one of the ways I look at what happened at the cross. It's not a perfect picture, okay? But what I see is that Jesus didn't belong where he went. It's like there's something incorrect about Jesus heading that way. He was without sin. And so you can almost see the belly of hell. We only eat scallywags and scoundrels. And everything that was a scallywag and a scoundrel that Jesus brought low that day, it devoured and then it spit back out what it couldn't chew. It's just a, a mental picture. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Jesus didn't belong there. He is risen. He is <clears throat> risen indeed. Listen to this story in Esther. This is talking about conning the con man. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Do you see any similarity here? By the way, for those of you that were here this weekend... For those of you that weren't, I mean, this is going to be a very brief occasion here. I talk about the battle of flesh versus spirit throughout the entire Bible. You start with, I mean, it's always the firstborn, okay? So you have Cain, flesh, Abel, spirit. You go through, you have you know, Ishmael and Isaac. Firstborn is always the flesh. Secondborn is always the one born of the promise, the one born of the spirit. Esau, Jacob. Saul, David. 
the descendants of Esau, which Esau is the classic illustration of the flesh in the Old Testament, the descendants of Esau are Amalek. Remember Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites? One of the first things he's supposed to do is king. He doesn't fully defeat them, right? And then David, the first thing when he is defeating, is coming into his kingdom, he's slaughtering the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the first issue that we must deal with in our life. The king, remember that, East, that I'm sorry, Saul, I have way too many names I'm throwing around today. Saul, when he destroyed the Amalekites, didn't do a complete job. He kept the king alive. Remember the king's name? Agag. It's a great name. Agag. I wouldn't encourage you to name any of your sons Agag. He's the king of the Amalekites, okay? The descendants of Agag are called Agagites. Haman was an Agagite. He's the flesh in Esther, okay? So they hanged Haman on the gallows. Haman has conspired to destroy the Jews. It's a great story in Esther. I'm not going to go through it. But he has conspired to destroy the Jews. But the great play by God, the twist in the end of Esther, is the very gallows that he built to destroy Mordecai, the good guy, the man of the spirit, the very one that was built to destroy Mordecai, is the one, ironically, that hanged Haman. The very cross that was meant to destroy Jesus, that was built by the enemy, was actually the cross that destroyed the enemy. Isn't that brilliant? Go, God! But look at the last line. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Isn't that extraordinary? Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.8. I love this statement. Speaking of the crucifixion, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they had known what was going to happen because of this crucifixion. (laughs) If they had known what was up, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If only they had known. Isn't God good? The con man was conned. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. How did he do it? It's what he was doing. It was condemned. Sin was condemned in the body of Christ. When he died, the power withered was shaken loose, was stomped on and destroyed. The head of the serpent, which is the head is the symbol of power and authority, crushed. It's crushed. God's literally saying, it's defeated. Stick your foot upon the neck. It's defeated. Colossians 2, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, And took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that interesting? All you see is Jesus there. How in the world is Jesus nailing ordinances to the cross? Well, how in the world does that happen? He doesn't even have hands to do it. God's in complete control here. You may think he's vulnerable. You may think he's a helpless victim. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver and thusly proved his messiahship by the very behavior of his enemies. The Roman soldiers are parting his garments and casting lots to fulfill Psalm 22. 
His enemies are demonstrating to the universe that he is the one that is promised in the Old Testament. With his hands pinned, he has it all in control. Our God was not caught off guard. Our God knew exactly what he was doing. And he took down everything that obstructed your soul. I love this line, so I don't want to miss it. And having spoiled principalities and powers. I love that. He spoiled principalities and powers. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. This is his triumph. This is his triumph. The spiritual realm began to behold it. Uh-oh, we got a problem here. Hey, guys, I don't think we should have done this. It's too late. It is finished. It is finished. He did it. Our Jesus did it. Conned the con man and crushed his head. Reckoning their defeat. Okay, now I talked briefly about reckoning this weekend. And I, I used the illustration of a $20 bill up on the stage. And I said, if I told you that there's a $20 bill up here on the stage, you see, you keep getting the $19 challenge from the enemy. And it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's to the point of absolute frustration and agony in your soul. Because the enemy keeps catching you in that one moment. And he says, 19 bucks. You pull, open your, you pull out your pockets. You know, that turn inside out your pocket type of thing. You have nothing. You can't pay it. And you fall and you fail once again. You see, you can't handle the temptation of the enemy. You have no strength inside of you. You're weak. And if I said, you know, there's $20 up here on the stage. And then I gave you a little trivia test. And I said, did Eric say that there was $20 up on the stage for you? You could say, yes, he did. It's true. It's true. Okay, well, do you have the $20 in your pocket? Because there's a big difference between knowing that $20 exists and having $20 in your pocket. Because when you go out to meet life's challenges, it sort of helps to have the $20. It doesn't help when you're facing the enemy going, hey, there's $20 back on the stage. You have to take what God has given you. And so the term in, in Romans 6 is reckon. You must reckon these things as true. So the illustration I oftentimes use at Ellerslie is the symbol of a banquet in the back room. And so I come out and I say, you know, there's a great banquet in the back room. And yet you sit here on the step and you never go back. Well, you could know that it's back there. But if you don't get up and walk towards it and actually go into the room and take the spoon and stick it in your mouth, that banquet is useless to you. Okay, and you could say, well... Like, for instance, one of the things it says in Romans 6 is that your old man was crucified with Christ. Your old man, the flesh, you know that sin principle in you? That part of you that keeps that cyclical pattern of defeat? Did you know that God actually clarifies in Romans 6 that that was crucified 2,000 years ago? And you're like, if it was crucified 2,000 years ago, I wouldn't be behaving this way today. (laughs) However... If that banquet has been back there, I don't want to use the term, you know, that the banquet has been back there 2,000 years. That sounds disgusting. (laughs) But there was something that was accomplished. When Jesus said it it is finished, it was done. The table was set. The fact that you've been sitting out here and you've been wallowing in your weakness saying, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. God doesn't feed his children. You want to bet? 
God has made you a great feast. But the key is you must rise up in faith, believing, and start walking. You say, but I don't smell it, I don't see it, I don't taste it. See, we want that buffet cart to be brought before us. Bring me the buffet cart and I will believe. Blessed is he who believes and yet is not seen. You get up and you take your God at his word. Do you believe that your old man was crucified? Do you believe it? You're like, well, my experience testifies. I don't care what your experience says. You say, what do you mean you don't care what my experience says? Experience is the worst way to form doctrine that ever was invented. It is not truth. Your experience is your limited perspective in a world controlled by the enemy. You think the enemy wants you to see truth? His entire global agenda is to diminish, is to counteract, is to say, you, it's not true, it's not true. You're living in hostile territory. God's saying, my people are saved by believing, through faith. You must rise up because God said it. You may not smell it. It makes no difference. You may not have ever smelled it. Makes no difference. Your entire life has been defeat. Makes no difference. The truth is the truth. God cannot lie. And his word is true. He does not change. That promise is just as good today as it was 2,000 years ago. You reckon it. Reckoning their defeat. Okay? That neck of the enemy is stretched out. And Joshua says, stick your foot on it. Wow. You could, if I asked you a trivia question, is the enemy defeated at the cross? Wouldn't you feel rather stupid to say, no, he's still very powerful? See, you probably have decent theology. But God says, stick your foot upon his neck. You prove it. You prove. If you believe, you live it. You see, in Romans 6, it gives three dimensions to believing. You must know it. First of all, you must know that there's a banquet back there. If you don't know that the banquet's back there, you're not going. You must know it, but then you must reckon it. It's the equivalent of sticking it in your pocket. It's an accounting term. Then you must yield and present your body to the realities. You literally are changed. Your behavior, your life, your direction, your course is altered because of it. This is what believing means. It's a life renovation. If it's true, your body ends up in the back room. If it's true, if you really believe it's true, where are you going to be? Here? No, you're going to be there. Believing is evidenced through fruit. It's through action. It's demonstrated. So don't tell me you're believing if you're sitting here on the step. If you're believing, you're getting up. Some of you simply just need to get up and start walking. You can say, but I don't smell anything. I don't see anything. I don't taste anything. All I've known is defeat. You trust God's word. The truth will make you free. You get up and start walking. You know what will happen? couple steps in, if I stopped, you said, do you smell anything? No. Keep walking. Do you believe God can lie? No. Do you believe his word is truth? Yes. Then do you believe God has promised? Yes. Do you believe the word of God? Yes. Keep walking. You know what happens midway down the aisle here? You smell it. Your life gets a whole new sheen to it when you smell it. Smell it. You're not even seeing it yet. Smell it. You're around the corner and guess what? You see it. You get closer, you keep walking in faith and you taste it. You taste and see how good our God really is. But how do you gain it? How do you gain the goodness and the great luster and savory taste of our God in your life? Practically and really. It's through faith. Don't wait for the buffet cart. 
reckoning their defeat. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Your old man has been a very present part of your existence. Your flesh has ruled you and controlled you. And yet Paul is saying very clearly, your old man is crucified with him. With him. When he died, guess what? Your old man was pinned to that tree. He condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with it. Well, why do I experience it today? Because you have not gotten up and taken. You must act. You must reckon. And that's what brings the money into your pocket. So that now you can transact. That money's been sitting there the whole time. But you have to get it in your spiritual pocket. So that it's useful to you in this battle. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth, we should not serve sin. It says it so plainly. How do we get around this? Well, you know, you need to be watchful of that. Because if you come to the conclusion that we're done with sin, then you're going to think, I'm not preaching Christian perfectionism where you believe in Jesus and suddenly you can't sin. Oh, you can sin, all right. You're very capable of failure in your life. The only way to live this life is to abide in the power, the life, and the grace of Jesus Christ. The same grace that will carry you to his feet is the same grace that will keep you there. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That means immersed. You see, something is happening here. Let me explain it to you. When you come into Christ, then what he accomplished, he takes you on a journey. You know, he's called the way. He's called the way. Christianity originally back in the ancient days was called the way. He is the way. Where's he going? He's the way to what? The father. You see, he has to get you to the throne room of grace. And so how does he get you there? First of all, he says, get into my robe. Get into me. And when you get into him, guess what? Then everywhere he goes, you go. And you'll see this in scripture. It's profound. He went to the cross. And guess what? You were baptized into that. You were immersed. You were in him. You were baptized into his death. His death did and accomplished on your behalf what you couldn't accomplish on your behalf. You ever tried to kill the old man in your life? Get out of here. Try and get your flesh out of here. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. In fact, it's impossible. You can't do it. He did it. There's a reason why you can't win that battle. He won it. You're trying to defeat an enemy that only he could defeat. You were baptized into his death. So he takes you to the cross. Why? Because he went there. This is his way to the Father. He went to the cross. Then he went to the tomb. Then he ascended. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? In Ephesians, it actually says, and you are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are literally brought to the throne room of grace. I am crucified with Christ. Do you believe it? When Christ was crucified, I was crucified. Everything that stands against my God's authority, my God's rulership over my life was dealt with. It's out of the way. The husk of the flesh, the husk of the self-life, the husk of sin... It's gone. I'm now able to live. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. This is Paul's conclusion on that matter. Okay, so crucified with Christ. When he died, your old man died. Reckon it. That's what Paul says. Reckon it. Take it. Don't just know it. If there was a uh, Rotary Club barbecue for uh, burgers and brats down the way and say I announced it oh, there's going to be a rotary barbecue for burgers and brats free uh, for anyone who comes you go oh that's wonderful yeah but if you don't go 
you're not going to have a burger or a brat working in your digestive tract. You see, you actually have to act upon what you know to be true. So it's not just knowing it, it's going and taking the burger and the brat. Likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Recognizing his triumph. Not just the defeat of the enemy. Not just the defeat of everything that has stood against you. Not just the neck of the five kings. Reckon his triumph. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Where is he going? He goes to the cross. Where do you go? To the cross. What happens to him at the cross? He dies. What happens to you? Your old man is dealt with. That sin principle, that self-centricity in your life is dead. You die. Then where does he go? He goes to the tomb. He's buried. Where do you go? To the tomb. What happens? Your old behavior. Your old man. Your old way of doing things. Buried. Stone rolled in front. Sealed off. Cleansed. It's dealt with. Justice is satisfied. You notice in all those stories of the kings of Judah and then the kings uh, of the king of Ai, what happens? They're buried with stones. It's dealt with. And it says, and they still remain to this day. You see a difference in the story of Jesus? You see, the stones always remain on that which is cursed and condemned. And they cannot be rolled away. They're too strong of a stone. However, the stone rolls away for the new man to emerge. Your old man is not just dead. He's not just buried. There is nothing that should be able to dislodge him. This isn't like one of those things where you need to allow the old man to come back to life every Friday night. That's how modern Christians live all the time. This isn't that. This is saying that you have legal paperwork signed by the blood of Jesus that annuls the power of the old man. Whenever he comes knocking, it's, come on, come on. Stick it in his face and say, out. You no longer rule in this body. You were crucified with Christ Jesus. You have the authority to do it now. And that old man has to heed the word of God. We should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. He goes to the cross. You go to the cross. He dies. You die. He's buried. You're buried. Stone rolls away. Jesus steps forth. What steps forth in your life? Jesus. Old man buried. Stone in front. New man set free to live. New management can come into your being now. The reason Christ brings you to the Father and you ascend with him is because now you're in Christ in order that Christ may now be in you. It's the great secret of the gospel. He has to get you to the Father so that now Christ can be in you. It's the hope of glory. The way that this world will once again see the person of Jesus Christ on earth. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Listen to this in Romans 6.11. I read you the first half before, but look at the second half. Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Life unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord is sitting up here on the stage. It's in the back room banquet. It's there for the taking. Do you believe that there's life unto God? Newness of life. Resurrection life. The only way to get it is you first of all have to get into Christ. You have to be taken to that cross. Old man has to be dealt with. You have to reckon it. You can't kill the old man. He did. You must reckon it as fact. It is done. It's literally as simple as rising up and saying, my old man is dead. I don't care about your experience. God doesn't care about your experience. He wants you to align yourself with fact, truth. And then you're buried, old behavior left behind, stone rolled in front. And then comes the third day. Then comes resurrection morning. Stone rolled away. New man emerges, takes you to the very throne of God, sets you in him at the right hand of the Father, the place of all authority. Everything under his feet. It says, everything has been placed under his feet. And he says, watch. Stretch out your neck. People of God, stick your foot upon the necks of the five kings. The five kings are dead and buried. Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near. Put your feet upon the necks of these kings. Who are these kings? Well, I don't want to speculate and try and draw direct comparisons, but whatever stands against you in the land of promise. Lust? Could be one of the kings. Fear? Greed? Pride? Selfishness? Stretch out your neck. Come, people of God, stick your foot upon their neck. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave. Wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth. Which remain until this very day. You know we know Jesus died. Hanging on a tree. We know he was taken down at evening. And we know he was stuck in a cave in a great stone was put in front of it. But what we oftentimes don't realize is that when he died, those five kings died too. They were cursed, condemned. And when he was buried, they were thrown into that cave and they are left there to rise no more. But that which was not digestible in hell was spit back out And our triumphant king, the same spirit that has raised him from the dead, dwells in his saints. Hell, where is your victory? Where is your sting? There is victory. The king of glory has come forth. But that old man, that old life, that old Satan, that old serpent, pinned to a tree, condemned powerless, defanged. And the neck is there. You must obey your Joshua and stick your foot upon it. Listen to this. This is a great scripture. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. 
Just, just talking about what we're, we're talking about. Five kings. He's on the cross. It's like he grabs the five kings and goes, Phoom! the wrath of God falls and he holds on and it strikes and it condemns sin in the flesh. It deals with everything that stands against us and uprises the pure one. The one upon whom the wrath of God truly cannot rest forever. The one upon whom there can't be a fire that kindles against him. He's pure, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And he rises again. It's a hard message to clarify. But if I could pinpoint something for you and I could say, you know what, if you're going to forget everything in that message and just hold on to a nugget, he has done it. Everything you can't do, everything you've been trying to do in your own strength, he's done it. It doesn't matter if your experience has ever lined up. You've been around Jesus. You've been on top of Jesus. You've been near Jesus, praising Jesus, praying to Jesus. You must be in Jesus. The secret to getting out of the old Adam principle is you must get out of Adam and into Christ. Your life changes. You need to get into Christ and then you need to reckon all the merits of his shed blood. Which, by the way, forgiveness, purging of your conscience, redemption, the list is extraordinary of what took place just when you come into Christ and you are shielded in his righteousness. But then he takes you in the way to the Father and he takes you where you must go to. You must go to that cross. And you did 2,000 years ago. I know you're saying, I wasn't even there. He knew you needed it. And he dealt with it 2,000 years ago. And so when you enter into Christ, the merit of his journey to the Father becomes your merit. And you're able to participate in it. And you go to the cross. You're buried. And then there's resurrection life. And then you ascend. Strangest thing. And you are seated in the place of authority and power in Christ. It says all the promises of Christ are yes and amen in him. All the promises, if you're in him, they're yes and amen. God's like, absolutely. Because you are in Christ. Being in Christ is where it begins. And then he takes you to the Father and Christ gets in you. And that's where the journey continues. It's Christianity. Being in Christ is the beginning. Some of us need to get to the beginning. And then Christ being in us is Christ demonstrated on earth once again for the glory of our great King. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.